Thank you for listening to this message from Sovereign Grace Community Church in Denver, Colorado. We pray that you are encouraged and edified by it. You can find more information about Sovereign Grace Community Church by visiting our website at www.sgccdenver.org. If you would like to make a donation to our small ministry, you can do so using the donate button on our website or on the SGCC Denver sermon audio page. Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Pray with me again, please. Our Father, as we continue our our time of worship, and we return to this, this marvelous epistle, I pray that we would be able to see what the writer intended his readers to see, that that in our struggles, in our difficulties, in the things that press us and disturb us and, and can even cause fear and doubt, uncertainty, a sense perhaps even that you have abandoned us or perhaps we have even missed the truth. I pray that the exhortation and encouragement that the writer intended for his readers would be our encouragement and our exhortation, that this wouldn't simply be an exercise in looking at a passage of scripture, but that it would minister to us with the power and the efficacy that the writer intended, that you intend for your people in every generation by preserving this for us. Make it be fruitful, lead out our thinking, encourage and nurture our faith. For Jesus' sake we ask, amen. Well, we are in the middle of our consideration of Moses' faith in Hebrews 11. And as I said, the writer gives more attention to Moses uh, than anyone that he treats in in this context other than Abraham himself. And for obvious reasons, Moses was probably the most significant figure in Israel's life. Certainly, he was the one concerning whom they, uh, or with respect to whom they measured their own faithfulness, their own sense of, of fidelity to God. They regarded themselves as disciples of Moses. He was the one uh, concerning whom they even ascribed the law, the, the covenant. Moses was the mediator, the giver, the upholder of that covenant. And so it's, it's obviously very relevant that the writer, in writing to a Hebrew audience, would give so much attention to Moses. And as I said before, also, the writer only just grabs a couple of touchstone things throughout the whole of, of Moses' experience, and yet he obviously expects that his readers know the story. And they would have. They would have known the story of Moses as well as they would have known any story in Israel's history, anything in the scriptures. And so as he picks out just these couple of things, it's important to understand everything that surrounds them uh, because certainly the readers would have. He's not just saying this one little narrow thing uh, is the way in which I'm showing Moses' faith, but it's like pulling on a, a string on a garment and you just pull a whole bunch of threads with it as well. And I've tried, as we've even begun this, to, to draw in that context. Obviously, this story is all taken from uh, the book of Exodus. 
and really at this point just the first and second chapters. So we saw last time as we considered verses uh, 24 through 26 how Moses spent really the majority of his first 40 years other than his very young childhood when he was allowed to still be nursed by his mother, he spent the vast majority of his first 40 years in Pharaoh's house as a prince of Egypt. Educated, sophisticated, given all of the benefits and all of the uh, capabilities that the ancient world could afford in terms of learning, in terms of, of discipline, of scholarship, of training. And Moses would have been very much fitted to be a leader of the people of Israel. But God had another plan for Moses. He would indeed be a leader, but not a leader of the people of Egypt. He would be a leader whose leadership actually would end up coming against and seeing the downfall of Egypt and its power in the ancient world. And Egypt was one of the great powers in the ancient world perhaps the greatest power at that point in time in the ancient world. We also saw how Moses, we don't know exactly how, but he apparently had some sense of his own distinction. Remember, his parents saw a distinction in him as an infant, and so they preserved him. They did what they could to keep him from being killed. And whether there was more interaction with his parents as he continued to grow, we don't know. Probably from about the age of three, he was raised in Pharaoh's house. But somehow, the text indicates that Moses had some sense of his calling. Stephen goes so far in in his account in the book of Acts as he's preparing to be stoned. Stephen goes so far as to say that Moses thought the people, when he intervened between two Hebrews fighting, he thought that they would understand what he understood, that God had raised him up to be the deliverer of the Hebrew people. So the scriptures don't tell us how he had that knowledge, how he obtained it, but there certainly is the strong indication that he had a sense of his calling. And even the fact that in the Exodus account that he goes out to his brethren who are working the mud pits as slaves of Egypt and its pharaoh, he goes out to them as brothers. And the writer of Hebrews saw in that Uh, Moses aligning himself with his people by way of renouncing the life that he had known, renouncing his Egyptian status, his Egyptian privilege, his status as a prince of Egypt. So he says, by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called son of Pharaoh's daughter. He renounced that life that he had known, that status that he had known. Choosing, rather, to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking for the reward. And if you haven't heard that message, I I encourage you to go back and listen to it, because the writer is obviously building his case concerning Moses in a certain way. But today I want to consider verse 27, the next step in this Uh, Again, pointing out or pinpointing Moses' faith. He says, By faith he, Moses, left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. So the writer, again, viewed Moses going out to his brothers, his alignment with his Hebrew brothers, as an act of faith. 
That's what he tells us in 24 through 26. He interpreted those actions, even in killing, intervening and killing the Egyptian taskmaster, as evidence of the faith that Moses had. And recall again that faith is a knowledge of and a firm conviction of what God has purposed and promised, what God has made known. Faith isn't just wishful thinking or hoping for a certain outcome or whatever. It is binding oneself to the God who is and the God who has spoken and the God who has made known his purposes, the God who has promised. And that's how he interprets Moses' action with his Hebrew brothers. And what he's telling us here is that he viewed that renouncing of Egypt that was symbolized by his solidarity with his brothers in the field that renunciation he views as reaching its culmination with Moses' flight from Egypt. What he had arrived at in his own mind, what made him stand with his brothers and even uh, kill the, the Egyptian that was beating his Hebrew countrymen, came to a head when he fled Egypt. He believed that Moses' departure from Egypt was itself an act of faith. That's his basic premise, and that's what I want to kind of build this out of in terms of trying to get at what it is that he's dealing with here. So the first thing then is how do we understand this departure, this leaving of Egypt? And there are some problems in it, and and I'll unpack all of that. But those problems have led to two different views. One view is that the writer is actually talking about the Exodus itself, when Moses left Egypt with the sons of Israel. And usually the reason for that view, which wouldn't maybe be the first view that would come to mind, but the reason for that view is because of this issue of the writer saying that he left not fearing the wrath of the king. And if you go back and you look at the Exodus account, the writer of Exodus Whoever put it into its final form, we obviously ascribe the Pentateuch in general to Moses. But he says, it came about in those days, this is again, well, let me just pick this up at verse, well, I'll read from verse 11. This is chapter 2 of Exodus. It came about in those days when Moses had grown up that he went out to his brethren and looked on their hard labors. This is what the writer of Hebrews has already addressed. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. And he looked this way and that, and when he saw there was no one watching, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. He buried him. And he went out the next day, and behold, two Hebrews were fighting with each other. And he said to the offender, why are you striking your companion, your brother? But he said to Moses, who made you a prince or a judge over us? Very ironic. Are you intending to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and said, surely the matters become known. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from the presence of Pharaoh and settled in the land of Midian. So the Exodus account indicates that the flight of Moses from Egypt was a matter of fear. 
And the Hebrews writer says that he left not fearing the king. That's a primary reason for the view that some have held. Again, what the writer's referring to here is the second time Moses left Egypt, when he left in the Exodus. Well, that might solve the problem of this apparent contradiction of this issue of fear, but it introduces another problem, probably the most notable one being uh, a chronological problem. We've seen throughout Hebrews 11 that the writer has followed the Pentateuch, the text of the Pentateuch, very, very closely, even chronologically. He stayed with the text very closely. It's obvious that he knew the Pentateuch, he knew the text, he knew the stories, he followed them very closely. And so if now he is dealing with the Exodus itself, there's an out-of-order quality to it. Because if you look at verse 28, it says, By faith he, Moses, kept the Passover. He puts the departure from Egypt before the Passover, and that's out of order, right? The Passover comes first. The other thing, too, is that he makes it clear that the Exodus was, at least here what he emphasizes, is that it was a corporate act of faith. He says in verse 29, By faith they, who, the sons of Israel, passed through the Red Sea. That doesn't mean that he couldn't single out Moses and his faith with respect to the Exodus, but why would he do that? Why would he do it out of order, and why would he single out Moses' faith when uh, two verses later he's talking about the faith of the whole nation in, in the Exodus? So these are some of the dilemmas associated with it. Obviously, the most logical view or the most natural view is probably the way to put it, is that the writer is referring to Moses fleeing from Egypt after he killed the Egyptian. But then we still have to deal with this issue of fear. Because Exodus says that he was afraid and fled. And the writer of Hebrews says that he left not being afraid of the king or the king's wrath. There's also the question then of how Moses fleeing Egypt was a matter of faith, because that's what he's saying. By faith, he left Egypt. How is it a matter of faith? If you just read the Exodus account, you wouldn't tend to view it as an issue of faith. It's Moses realizing he's in big trouble His life is on the line, and he better get out of there. And if he really knew that God had appointed him, ordained him to be his deliverer, wouldn't his faith have caused him to say, God will preserve me in view of my work. Pharaoh's not going to be able to touch me. I don't need to flee to preserve my life. If I'm the deliverer, it's, it's like that old saying, I'm invincible until God's done with me. So what motivated him to flee? Was he thinking somehow God would bring him back later? What was going through his head? How was the writer viewing this as an act of faith? So we have a couple of dilemmas to sort out, and I believe that the writer is in fact talking about Moses' flight from Egypt. So what is he getting at? How is he understanding this? 
Well, first of all, when we look at what he says versus what the Exodus account says, Exodus associates Moses' fear specifically with the fact that his killing of the Egyptian had been found out. People knew that he had done that, and he knew it was only a matter of time before the word got back to Pharaoh. And the last thing that you did was kill an Egyptian, particularly on behalf of a slave. But it was when that deed became known, Moses was afraid. Moses was afraid. The writer of Hebrews attaches this idea of Moses' fear to fear of the king and his wrath. Well, in many ways, I think that's perhaps a distinction without a difference. Because in the Exodus account, yes, it was when he knew that he'd been found out that Moses was afraid. But why was he afraid? Because the king was going to have him killed. So his fear of discovery was his fear of the wrath of the king. And the Exodus account even says that. Moses was afraid. And when Pharaoh found out, he went after him to kill him and Moses fled. But that's the, the, in, the, in the narrowest sense, that's the distinction between how those two accounts, the writer of Hebrews and the text of Exodus, deal with this issue of fear. So I think that the resolution, uh, the, the apparent problem, is resolved by recognizing how both the Exodus account and the Hebrews writer, uh, his account, are true. Obviously, the Hebrews writer knew the Exodus account. The way he's dealt with all of these other things to this point, he obviously knew what the book of Exodus says about this episode. So he's not contradicting it, but he is looking at it in a way that gives the the appearance of contradiction. But that tells us that there has to be some way to resolve this. One way that it's been resolved is to say that Moses wasn't afraid for himself. In other words, he wasn't afraid of the wrath of the king coming against him. He wasn't afraid for himself. But when he was discovered, his fear, this is the Exodus account, when he knew he'd been discovered... His fear was really tied to a concern that perhaps he had sabotaged God's purposes for him. In other words, now God has called me to be his deliverer. Now, because of what I've done and the fact that it's a known thing, I'm not worried about my own skin, but I am worried about the purpose of God. Have I sabotaged God's purposes? Have I done something that would undermine God's intent for the sons of Israel and more narrowly, for me. So it wasn't so much fear about his own skin as much as a a fear that was looking at the implication of what he'd done for his purpose in God's calling. And so the idea then would be that Moses fled in faith, believing that he had been called to deliver Israel, and the only option for him was to flee in order to survive to fulfill his mission at a later time. Now, that's one way in which that dilemma has been resolved. And I'm not trying to make this complicated, but when we read a text, any text, and certainly one like this, we need to be asking ourselves these sorts of questions because we can go back and see how 
Exodus deals with this and how the writer deals with it, and we do see apparent differences. And even more than just sorting out differences, it's arriving at what the writer is really getting at, because I think what he's getting at here is very profound. And so we don't want to just brush over it in a casual way. I think when we look more closely at what the writer of Hebrews says, his point is, is in a slightly different direction. Not that what I just said is an option, uh, a possible option is, is completely untrue or unreasonable or it could, you know, that couldn't be the case at all. But I think the writer is making a different point. And the key is his own clarification in the second part of the verse. He says, for, and this, this inferential conjunction or the, this, this conjunction is an inference giving conjunction. It, it, he's saying that this is the reason or, or here's how you are to understand this. It's a conjunction that draws out the inference. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured. For he endured as seeing him who is unseen. So the writer is giving you insight into how he's thinking about Moses' flight in faith. He's fleeing from Egypt. The second part of the verse is a clue as to how he's thinking about it. And that's why I say I think that he's taking it in a slightly different direction than we would tend to think. The other thing is that his language of leaving here, that he says he left Egypt, it it does mean to depart, but it also connotes the idea of an abandonment or a forsaking. It wasn't just leaving the country. It's forsaking Egypt. And that's why I said at the beginning that from the writer's vantage point, he viewed this departure from Egypt as the culmination of the forsaking of Egypt that had happened in Moses' own mind and conviction when he went out and and encountered and interacted with his brethren, his Hebrew brethren, in solidarity and killed the Egyptian. In other words, in his own conviction, he had already forsaken Egypt and his status and his privilege and the life that he had known for his whole life. He's now, according to Stephen, about 40 years old. He's not a teenager. He's not an adolescent. He's 40 years old. And that decision that he made to forsake Egypt comes to this culmination when he goes. So he's not just, he's not fleeing for his life in the way that the writer is thinking of it here. This is the tangible, obvious evidence of his forsaking. This is the culmination of his having forsaken Egypt. So I think when we put these pieces together, we can say, as Exodus does, that Moses was afraid for his life, There was a fear that came over him when he realized this was known. And likely part of that fear was a concern for his calling and whether indeed he would end up fulfilling what God had called him to do. But the idea is something more than that, something greater than that. The writer describes Moses' faith in terms of a patient endurance. That's the idea. A patient endurance associated with 
see, seeing or having his gaze fixed on the one who is unseen. That takes us back to verse 1, doesn't it? Faith is what? Faith gives substance to that which is not seen. It, it gives substance to that which lies in the future. It brings it into the present. And it also allows us to see what isn't seen. And he's drawing on that idea here with Moses. Moses patiently endured as seeing him who is unseen. Why is that important? Because it shifts the emphasis away from Moses fleeing Egypt to what came beyond that. The way the writer interprets his own statement, by faith Moses fled Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured. He patiently endured as seeing him who is unseen. Well, that second piece isn't talking about the actual episode of Moses fleeing from Egypt. It's what came out of that. It's what that led to. And in that circumstance that came from his flight from Egypt, Moses had no reason to fear the king on his behalf. He was out of Egypt. He was gone. He didn't have to be afraid of the king. So it's, it's really pointless for the writer to say he didn't fear the wrath of the king. Obviously, he didn't. He was out of the country. That's like saying, you know, I walk down the street on my feet. You don't need to say on my feet, right? It's obvious. Obviously, he didn't fear. So why is the writer saying he didn't fear the wrath of the king when he was already out of Egypt? And I think this is what he's getting at. His point is that Moses' faith, this patient, this disposition of patient endurance, enabled him to not fear the king on behalf of his Hebrew brethren. You see, when Moses killed the Egyptian and fled, what is the most likely outcome? Pharaoh is going to take out his wrath on his Hebrew slaves. He was furious with Moses. Here was a man who had betrayed him. He'd raised him in his own house. He'd raised him as a prince of Egypt. He'd given him all of the benefits and the endowments and the privileges of being a prince in Egypt. And now Moses betrays him, shows himself to be a Hebrew. Obviously, Pharaoh's daughter knew all along he was a Hebrew. But now Pharaoh is aware of that, and he has killed one of his men on behalf of a Hebrew slave, and now he's slipped through his grasp. Who's Pharaoh going to take out his rage on? Moses' brethren. Moses is not fearing the king. He's enduring in a patient, faithful way. As he has now gone into exile, he's holding on to his trust in God and God's purposes and God's promises. So there are really, uh, you know, the first part I called the occasion of this faith that the writer is talking about. The second part is what is its orientation? And there are two pieces to that. The one I've already mentioned, which Moses' patient endurance in faith was oriented towards his brethren. But it was also, first of all, oriented towards himself. 
He's out of Egypt. He can't help his brethren in Egypt, but he believes that God has called him to be the deliverer. And so when he flees Egypt, he's not running away. He's really showing his solidarity with his Israelite brethren. He, re, he renounced Egypt when he intervened for them, and now in fleeing, what the writer calls abandoning or forsaking Egypt, he's enhancing or showing in an enhanced way his solidarity with his brethren. He's not forsaking them. He's not abandoning them. And yet he is leaving them behind. And he has no control over what will happen to them. But he still very much is in solidarity with them. He's bearing them in his own heart. And so the idea of him patiently enduring, not fearing the king's wrath, speaks to his life in exile. He left Egypt aware of his calling, which meant that he must have believed he was going to go back someday. He was going to return. And when he did, he would return as God had commissioned him to deliver Abraham's children. So that God would then at that time indeed fulfill his oath to Abraham. When the time comes, I will bring you out and, I, and you will plunder the people. I bring you out with many possessions and I will gather you to myself and I will give you the land of Canaan. You will be my people, I will be your God. The promise to Abraham. So Moses' faith made him sure of that outcome, but he had no idea when that would happen, how exactly it would happen. He endured in patient faith on behalf of his own mission, on behalf of his own calling, but also ultimately on behalf of his brethren. He had had to leave them behind, but he did so with the confidence that as Abraham's children, God would not forsake them. Moses could do nothing for them. But he knew who they were, and he knew what God had promised. And so in spite of everything that said, this is going to be a bloodbath, these are powerless slaves under the thumb of one of the mightiest military entities in the world at that time, God has, even the fact that he has called me to be the the, the deliverer, says that he will preserve them. He will preserve them in view of that day. Somehow, some way, God will preserve them. They will not be destroyed. And so Moses' faith in this instance, as the writer is drawing it out, was his sure confidence in the faithfulness of the God who had purposed a purpose for the world bound up in Abraham and his descendants, and that God had promised this mighty work of deliverance. So it wasn't that Moses was hanging out in in Midian thinking, oh, I hope this has a good outcome a kind of wishful thinking, expectation sort of. It wasn't that. It was a surety that God would be faithful to what he had promised. The Lord who is king over all kings, the Lord who is king over all kings would constrain the wrath of the Egyptian king and ensure the people's survival. This God who had made Israel a great nation against all odds. Remember, that's what we saw at the beginning. 
The Egyptians were afraid of them, even though they were powerless people, because they kept multiplying, kept multiplying, kept multiplying. The promise to Abraham was, I'll make you a great nation. And God had made them a great nation. And the more that the Egyptians afflicted them, the greater they became. That's why Pharaoh started saying all of the sons have to be killed. When they're born, kill them. And God preserved them. The midwives didn't comply. That's how Moses ends up being hidden, right? So God had preserved the people against all odds. And Moses was convinced that God would indeed, the day would come when he would deliver them through him. And he would gather them to himself in the land that he promised to their fathers. That's what Moses' patient endurance and faith was all about. So the issue wasn't just, was he afraid or not afraid when he left Egypt? But the whole psychology of that episode, Moses' faith expressed itself in patient endurance as he fixed his gaze on the God who, though unseen and silent, is always faithful. Faith is not sight, I say it all the time. There's two ways people can live, by faith or by sight. Sight means making decisions, judgments, courses of action based on what I've observed, what I know to be true based on experience, based on human judgment, based on circumstances, based on expectations, statistics, probability. That's sight. That's how every person lives outside of Christ. And even we who are in Christ struggle to not live in that way. To live with the mind of Christ. Faith says, I believe the God who is. I believe the God who has made himself known. I believe the God who has purposed and promised. Regardless of what I see. Regardless of what I know. Patient endurance with a gaze fixed on the one who is unseen. Seeing the one who's unseen. And this will even lead us into chapter 12, where the writer says that, right? Casting off all weight, everything that encumbers, fix your gaze on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Fix your gaze on him. And the idea there is stop looking at what you're looking at and lock your gaze on him. Because we're all looking around saying, how do we fix this? How do we get this? How do we make this work the way it ought to work? Interestingly with Moses, and the writer doesn't say this, but his readers obviously knew it, this patient endurance in faith was not going to be a brief interlude. How long was it going to be? Forty years. Forty years. Moses spent as much time in Midian tending his father-in-law's sheep as he did as a prince in Egypt. And it's not coincidental that Moses dies at 120 and he has 40 years as a prince of Egypt, 40 years in Midian, and 40 years with Israel in the wilderness. 40 is the number of testing, right? And the text wants you to understand that Moses' entire life was a series of testings. Three times of testing. His whole life was a testing. Testing of what? Testing of his faith. His faith was tested as a prince of Egypt. 
Would he renounce that? Would, would, would he own the difficulties? The writer says, choosing to suffer ill treatment with the people of God, then have the blessings, the privilege, the status of Egypt. As I said, Moses would have been one of the greatest, most privileged men on the planet at that time. A test. Fleeing to Midian. Wait, I thought I was the deliverer. God, your people are back there in Egypt. They're suffering. I'm sure hundreds or thousands of them are dying. What's going on here? Year after year after year after year. And even when he led the Israelites out of Egypt, there were times when Moses wanted to send them back. God, I can't handle these people. They don't listen. They're stubborn. They're disobedient. They're godless. They're driving me crazy. I can't handle this. Right? Another test. And one of the great ironies is that Moses, for all of that, 120 years, he himself does not get to enter the land of Canaan. He dies outside of the land. God lets him go up to the top of a mountain where he can see the land, but he doesn't get to go in. But the point is, is that this time of patient endurance, when the writer says, for he endured patiently as seeing him who is unseen, that was the whole character of Moses' 40 years in Midian. 40 years. Moses waited and he worked in patient faith. And what I want us to see in that is that as Moses waited, he went about life. He didn't put God to the test. Faith doesn't put God to the test. It doesn't say, God, how come it doesn't look like this? God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back to Egypt because I know you call me. I'm the deliverer. I'm just going to go back and I know you'll honor my, my intent. Like Satan with Jesus. If you're the son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread, right? If you're the son of God, throw yourself off the temple. Because here it says in the text that the faithful man, God will give his angels charge concerning you. They will bear you up in their hands lest you strike your foot against a stone. God will protect you. He says it's right here in the text. You're the faithful man. You shall not test, tempt the Lord your God. You should not put him to the test. What's my point in that? Is that throughout these years, and when Moses left Egypt, he had no idea how long this was going to be. But month after month, year after year, year after year. And what did Moses do? He didn't hide. He didn't do the Jonah thing where he sits there and says, God, destroy them. I'm going to wait here. I'm not going to move until you destroy them. That's it, I'm done, I'm going to sit here, right? He didn't hide, he didn't check out, he didn't put his life on hold. He went about the business of everyday human existence. He married, he worked, he had children. That doesn't mean that he lost sight of his calling. That doesn't mean that he lost sight of his brethren in Egypt. He never did. But he pressed on. He 
He knew his calling, but he didn't know when, and he didn't know exactly how. Faith is faithful in the day, in the moment, with the responsibilities, with the obligations, with the needs of the day. Faith doesn't mean going and hiding in a cave until it all gets sorted out and I can, you know, go back to the world that I want. Faith means living faithfully according to the need of the day, with the mind of Christ, wisely. Moses didn't know how things would play out, but he knew two things. God is faithful and his own destiny lay in Egypt. In the meantime, he was a sheep herder. He tended his father's flocks. Wait a minute, God. I thought, I thought, I thought, what are you doing? When is this going to happen? How is this going to work? He never lost sight of his calling. He never lost sight of the plight of his brethren. But he entrusted them and himself and his own future to the God who is faithful. The hardest thing for us to do. For 40 years, he shepherded his family's sheep until the day finally came when Yahweh sent him back to shepherd his people Israel. And all of this is covered in a brief snippet in the book of Exodus, and the writer of Hebrews jumps over it other than simply calling this patient endurance, seeing the one who is seen, unseen. That's how he characterizes that 40 years of Moses' life. So here's my concluding Thing, and I hopefully you already had a sense that this is where I was going. You know, th- this, is the, this is the arrow in our own heart. We don't have the calling to be the deliverer of the Israelite people, but we do have a calling to faithfulness. Each one of our lives is different, and each one of our gifts and the calling of our gifts is different. Our lives are not the same. But what about our calling? What about our lives in this world? What about our faithfulness in patient endurance? Everyone suffers. Everyone has obstacles. Everyone faces uncertainty. All of us. We don't know what it's going to look like tomorrow. And it's very easy for us to get so preoccupied with the when, the how, the what will it look like that we actually squander our days. Wisdom, as the Proverbs exalts wisdom, wisdom is actually becomes embodied in the Messiah himself, right? He is the wisdom of God. But wisdom is the capacity to see the landscape of life and relate to it and interact with it according to the truth. Wisdom doesn't allow us to change the landscape or to make life look the way that we want it to look, but wisdom enables us to relate to things as they really are, which means relating to them faithfully. And life is a dynamic thing, and it's always changing. See, it's easy. I, mean, I say this about the Apostle Paul all the time, and, and, and certainly with the Jews, with Moses, it's easy to idolize these people and say, man, you know, I wish I could 
heal somebody or raise someone from the dead. I wish I could touch a scarf. I wish, you know, I wish I could be the one who could, you know, tell Pharaoh, go pound sand and lead, you know, a million plus people out of Egypt. I wish I, you know, what a glorious thing. These men had terribly hard lives. Paul is sitting in prison when he says that by the cross of the Messiah, God has conquered the powers and authorities. He has triumphed over them. He has made a spectacle out of them. He has triumphed over the powers that oppose him. And Paul's writing that from a prison cell. Where's the triumph in imprisonment? How can he say we are more than conquerors through him who loved us? Well, it's like John's vision in Revelation. They overcome the dragon and his power by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, but it may cost them their life. They don't love their lives unto death. See, we live in a culture especially where we think if God exists, then he'll do this. We were talking about it earlier. You know, so many people who are atheists are atheists because there's something in their past where life didn't look the way they thought it should, and they decide there can't be a God. Because if he did, it would look like this. If God is good, it will look like this. I'll never get a flat tire. I'll never get sick. There's healing in the atonement, right? Everything will be wonderful. And even if there are problems, tomorrow it'll be better. My miracle's coming tomorrow. Paul lived a very difficult life. Moses lived a very difficult life. 40, 40, 40, three seasons of testing, all of which were agonizing in their own right. And all we have to do to look at this thing of patient endurance as the mark of faithfulness is look at Jesus himself. The Lord who is uniquely beloved of the Father when people looked at his life, they didn't, they didn't say, oh, yeah, it's clear that he's the beloved son of Yahweh, the God of Israel. They, they viewed him as smitten of God, stricken, afflicted. His life was very difficult. All the way with the difficulty culminating at Calvary, right? And in that great act of self-giving and the agony of being absolutely crushed and destroyed and poured out was the triumph of God's love, not only towards the Son, but in and through the Son for the world. Faithfulness that is patient endurance doesn't mean simply saying, okay, I'm going to grit my teeth and I'm going to watch the clock until God finally does what I, I believe he's going to do. That patient endurance is the embracing of life and its circumstances and its days and its needs and its obligations with a joy. Approaching life as an issue of worship. I said it last week, even with, with respect to resistance to authority. If and when that's necessary, it's only legitimate when it's an act of worship. Everything is to be an act of worship if it's going to be acceptable. If it's going to be true. And our patient endurance is that constancy that enables us to stand fast.
Can you see how the writer taking this orientation towards Moses would have been such a ministry to the people to whom he's writing? Because they were struggling and suffering in ways we can't even imagine. And he says even to them, you haven't suffered to the shedding of your blood. It may come. But he wants them to be encouraged. If they're going to draw an example from Moses, and every Jew would want to draw an example from Moses, they would draw an example from how that man endured patiently in faith for 120 years, and then he died. And God was glorified in him. And there was never one, the commentary of Deuteronomy is there was never one like Moses. One who communed with God mouth to mouth, face to face. And yet we wouldn't want Moses' life. We don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. We don't know how many years we have. But if it's 100 years, we're to walk it out faithfully, meeting each day with the mind of Christ. With hearts filled with joy and peace, contentment. Bearing the fragrance of Christ in every place. Since I have a couple minutes, I'd like to have you flip over to 1 Corinthians 7 and just give this as a reading in closing, and then I'll, I'll pray. As Paul talks about this issue, the, the context is marriage, and, and specifically in Corinth, as people were coming to faith and they had now had an unbelieving spouse, they were thinking, I should put my unbelieving spouse away. I have entered into a new relationship, a new reality with God. I need to put this aside. At the very least, I should probably be celibate inside of my marriage. And there was a cultural you know, concern in that because of all the temple prostitution and you know, uh, sexuality was so much associated with idolatry and paganism in Corinth. It was filled with temples. Uh, that operated in that way. But Paul is talking about, again, how we live. Think again about the framework where I've said, we live in an already but not yet state of, of this new creation. We inhabit two worlds at the same time. Yes, we've been raised up in the Messiah. Yes, we are more than conquerors in him. Yes, our triumph is complete in him. Yes, we have been resurrected in him. And yet, it doesn't presently appear what it shall be. That's the mindset that Paul is bringing to bear here as he speaks to the Corinthians. So he says in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 17, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 17, only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each one, let him walk in that manner. Don't try to change everything. What is your circumstance? What are your obligations? What's the definition of the lives, your, your everyday life? Don't, you know, live into that, but as one in Christ. And I direct all of the churches in this way. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? Well, then let him not try to become uncircumcised. Was someone called in uncircumcision? Well, let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing. Uncircumcision is nothing. What matters is keeping the commandments of God. And by that, he means the truth that is yes and amen in the Messiah, living out faithfully this new life in Christ. Let each man remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Don't worry about it. 
If you're able to become free, then yes, that's good. Go ahead and do that. But don't worry about it. Because the one who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. And likewise, the one who was called while a free man is Christ's bond slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Do not get caught up in these things. Brethren, let each man remain with God in the condition which he was called. He says it again. And now as this pertains again to the issue of marriage, he says concerning virgins, concerning young women who are not married, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion as one who by the mercy of God is trustworthy, one who has the mind of Christ. And I think it is good in view of the present distress that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be loosed from her, released from her. Are you released from a wife? Don't seek a wife. If you should marry, you haven't sinned. And if a virgin should marry, she hasn't sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life, and I'm trying to spare you. But this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened. We are now in the ends of the ages. Now that the Messiah has come, everything has changed. And Paul didn't know exactly when the parousia and you know the, 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 the summing up of everything in the Messiah would be. But he knew everything had changed with the resurrection of the Messiah. And people need to live in light of that new creation, although they inhabit two worlds at the same time. And so I say, brethren, in view of the time being shortened, that from now on, those who have wives should be as though they had none. Those who weep as those who, as if they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they did not possess. Those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it, for the form of this world is passing away. So what is Paul saying He's saying, live your lives in this world. Moses married. He had children. He worked. He didn't go hide and wait for something to happen. But he he lived his life under the sun with a sense of vision, a sense of calling, a sense of of orientation, a sense of, of what this God was doing and what he was a part of. And that's the same for us. That's what Paul's telling the Corinthians Don't think because you've come to Christ now that everything has to change. Get rid of your wife. Get rid of this. Change everything. Go live in a monastery or whatever. Go off to the mission field. Be faithful with where God has put you. But that faithfulness looks like looking at life in a different way. You view your marriage in a different way. You view your possessions in a different way. You view your joy in a different way. Yes, rejoice in the good things in this life but not as if that's ultimate or determinative. Yes, you'll have sorrow in this life, but not as if that sorrow is ultimate or determinative. We have to live out our lives in this world, but with the recognition that we died and our lives are hidden with Christ in God, and we're defined by a new creation. And that requires a discipline. That requires a constancy. That requires patient endurance in faith. Right? Father, I pray that you would help us in these things. We, we all have to confess that the things of life capture us in so many ways. Not that all of that is bad, 
There are many needful things. There are many good things. Paul doesn't find fault with marriage. He doesn't find fault with work. He doesn't find fault with parenting. He doesn't find fault with all of these things, you know, the buying and the selling and the transacting and and just the things of life. But he says that we are to approach life with a new mind. This is what it means that everything is sanctified by your own word and by prayer. And our engagement with all things is to be an act of worship. It's to be an act of living as seeing the one who is unseen. Father, give us such eyes. Give us such a perspective. Our world, our culture desperately needs to see something beyond the religion of Christianity. It needs to see the truth of a new creation, a renewal that is the promise of the summing up of everything in the heavens and the earth in Jesus our Lord. That's why Jesus matters. That's the truth of his gospel. May we be truly a gospel people. Draw us near, hold our hearts tightly, cause us, Father, by the the power and grace of your spirit to truly seek you in all things at all times to truly long and to apply ourselves to grow up in all things into Christ who is the head. For our joy's sake, for our faithfulness sake, for the sake of your witness in the church and in the world. May we be as Moses was, trusting, believing our God who has purposed, who has promised, who is working all things towards the accomplishing of that all-inclusive goal summing up everything in the Messiah that our God will be all in all. Let us live our lives in this world in view of that. Not hiding, not renouncing the things of this life, but sanctifying them. We ask these things, Father, with the confidence that is ours, with the sense of reliance on your power, your grace, your forgiveness, your ever-sustaining grace. In Christ our Lord, amen.